Mark chapter number 14, and I'm going to start in verse number 1. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes saw how they might take him by craft and put him to death. They said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will may do them good. But me, ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken for a memorial of her. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he saw how he might conveniently betray him. There was a conspiracy theory back in the 50s and 60s that um, the CIA was trying to develop a truth serum. And they would go into hospitals and prisons and secretly give people LSD. And then they would arrest them. And while they were out of their mind on LSD, they would uh, interrogate them and try to figure out if uh, they, they had developed a truth serum. I mean, that's kind of crazy conspiracy theory, right? Except it's true. Um, I read about it on the CIA's website. It was a conspiracy theory until the 70s whenever someone um, leaked the information and said, yes, actually they did, and they were, they were paying hospitals and colleges and um, prisons to secretly, um, unwittingly give people drugs and then uh, mess with their heads. There are some strange conspiracy theories out there. Elijah and I were looking some of them up. One of them is that uh, Israel has GPS-controlled sharks that they send out into the Mediterranean Sea to attack their enemies at sea. There are some strange conspiracy theories, but, but conspiracies do exist. Men do come together and plot to do underhanded, secret, and wicked deeds in the cover of darkness. If you would have went out to people in Jerusalem and said, did you know the chief priest is plotting a murder? That's all. Oh, you're, you're crazy. He's a man of God. These are the most holy men in Israel. What are you talking about? Plotting a murder. But that's exactly what they were doing. This was a conspiracy that the Jews, the high priests, the scribes, had conspired. To, they are plotting together to murder Jesus. These powerful men have conspired and covenanted together to commit murder. Now that's the plot of many stories, many movies, where you have um, the powerful people in charge plotting together to, to use their power and their influence 
to, to plan out and map out a murder. It's enough to give you chills if you think about it from this perspective that these people were actively trying to, to murder Jesus. But on the flip side, the bad guys aren't the only people that have the plan. And as we think about this passage, we need to remember that the Lord God also had a plan. The chief priests, the scribes, they had a plan. Judas had a plan. But in all this, God had a plan. God's plan will be accomplished. And so um, this morning I'm going to preach on sovereignty and conspiracy. And we're going to look at it from the three different points because there's two different scenes. We're in the scene with the chief priests and the scribes. That's where we start out. So they're in their lair plotting this conspiracy. And then you move over to the second scene in Bethany with Jesus. And then we end up back where we started, back in that scene of a conspiracy. So we have a plot, then we have the story of this box of ointment, and then we have the making of a conspiracy. So in the first two verses, we have the plot. The chief priests and the scribes, they've had enough. They've just had enough of Jesus. In the previous chapters, he comes into the temple, he condemns their temple worship. He challenges their authority and their position. He bested them in their attempts to trap him in his words with debate. He bested the, the, the priests, the Pharisees, Herodians, the scribes, and they just walk away frustrated because they know they can't beat him. They know they can't trap him in his words. So now they counsel together against the Lord to plot his death. Psalm 2 says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 2, a messianic psalm, is also a conspiracy of the kings of the earth. They plot and they counsel together to break the cords asunder from the Lord. They plot against the Lord. They really wanted Jesus gone. But they didn't fear God, they feared the people. And so that's what their counsel was about. They were saying, we need to get rid of Jesus, but we can't do it right now. If we take him right now, it's going to backfire on us because of the people. Jesus comes into the temple, but right now it's Passover week, and people from all over are in Jerusalem to worship the Passover. So Jesus, for three days, had come into the temple, and there's a great multitude there, and he would teach and people would hear him and believe him and, and get excited about him coming. They say, well, if we come and arrest Jesus in the temple, who knows what might happen? We can't just drag him out of the temple. It's too unpredictable. We have, to, we have to wait. It's not the right time. There's no way that we could arrest him now. We don't know where he goes at night. There were lots of people in Jerusalem for Passover, and he, you remember what Passover is. is a week-long memorial of God's deliverance from Israel, or Israel out of Egypt. So for this whole week, they only ate unleavened bread. And it ends on the sixth day in the evening time where they have a Passover feast. And this recalled their hurried flight out of Egypt and they, with the offering of the Passover lamb. 
So back in Exodus, you remember when the Israelites were enslaved, God commanded Pharaoh to let my people go. But he wouldn't do it. And God sent a plague. Pharaoh said, okay, I'll let you go. No, I changed my mind. And another plague would come. Pharaoh said, okay, I'll let you go. No, I changed my mind. No. Sort of that same pattern. Now, after nine plagues, God said this was going to be the last one. The firstborn in every house will be, is going to die. So the Lord instructed Moses for each home to take a lamb without blemish and to sacrifice it and to put the blood on the doorposts. And they, they were to eat this Passover lamb with their shoes on and, and they were not to have any leaven in the house with their staffs in their hand because God is going to deliver them. And so that night, when the Israeli people were, were safe within their homes with the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, the angel comes and the firstborn in every house dies except where the blood was shed. Because when God would see the blood, he would pass over that house. God delivered Israel through the sacrifice. Through the sacrifice. He redeemed them and delivered them out of bondage. And led them into the land of promise. And so, you can read in Deuteronomy 16, every year God commanded the Israelites for that week to eat unleavened bread, and on the sixth day to offer the sacrifice in the evening, eat the Passover meal, and the seventh day would be a solemn assembly to the Lord. So the chief priests and the scribes said, we can't do this right now. There's too many people here, too much going on, We'll never be able to accomplish our goal. We can't, we can't do it now because we fear an uproar of the people. They didn't say not because we're thankful to God for his deliverance, not because this is supposed to be a solemn assembly unto the Lord, not because they were meditating on how God redeemed Israel through the blood sacrifice, because they were afraid of the people. How wicked these men were. I think that they just thought they didn't have an opportunity to capture him. Because every time he came into the temple, people would listen to him, and a lot of people believed him, and a lot of people liked what he said. And they said, if we arrest him then, people will get mad. We don't want to stir the people up, but we do need to take care of this. So they decided to wait. Passover just wouldn't work. It says that they came together by craft in verse number one of our text. Back in Mark chapter number seven, this is one of the evil things that Jesus says that come out of a man's heart. In um, Mark 7, verse number 20. So, craft and deceit, it's the same thing in verse 22. But I'm going to read this, and you just think about what Jesus is saying to these people, to the Pharisees and the scribes, about what comes out of a heart. And that which cometh out of the man defileth the man. From within, the, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile the man. It's almost... As if this conspiracy said, let's see how many of these things that we can portray in our council together. 
murder and evil thoughts and foolishness and um, blasphemy and murder. They desired the people's praise and power and wealth and they were looking with an evil eye to put Jesus to death. It's interesting when we compare that priest to our priest. It's a stark contrast between how they acted towards Jesus and how Jesus reacted. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 1.21. Well, verse 20, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Well, I'm sorry. It should have been verse 19. That Jesus, with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb, without blemish and without spot, who was verily foreordained from the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth of the Spirit, and unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. So, so Jesus here, we've got precious lamb. Um, well, that was chapter one. That's why. Chapter two, sorry. So Jesus, the, the, uh, the, the lamb without spot, the precious lamb, and that's referencing the Passover. Then we go over to chapter two, verse 21. And hereunto we were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who did no sin, Neither was guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Who bear in his own, or bear our sins in his own body on the tree. So I got those out of order, but uh, we see here that the chief priests were full of guile and deceit, but there was no guile and deceit in Jesus' mouth. The chief priests did not want to stir people up because of the Passover, but here is Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb. Well, the scene ends. So back in our text, the scene ends. The, the conspirators are settled on a murder, but now they just need to figure out when and where and, and how to do it. The scene ends, and then a new scene opens. Meanwhile, while this is going on, Meanwhile, Jesus and the disciples are in Bethany. So the scene closes, new scene opens in Bethany, and Jesus is at dinner at the house of Simon the leper. So here we see quite a different situation, starting in verse number three. While they were eating, this, this woman comes in and comes straight to Jesus. She wasn't serving dinner. Um, but she came to give him a gift. And she takes this container, and maybe like a vase, or something you might find with olive oil on it, or essential oils. I'm thinking like the kind that's designed to drip out slowly. You know, that, that you pour it over, and the, the stuff will come out, but maybe not so fast. And she takes it, and she breaks it, so she can pour out the contents on the, on the head of Jesus. So this was an alabaster box. There's a mineral that you find on the, um, the floor of limestone caves. It's not the same kind of alabaster as you might find here. People in the Bible days use it for vases and containers. 
and it was well suited for their oil. So it was translucent, often red, and green streaks. It was very beautiful. And so they would, they would craft these uh, containers, these boxes, out of this, precious, this mineral. It was very beautiful. And they would craft it in such a way that, that it contained oil. And, and so this woman takes this very beautiful alabaster box. And she takes it and breaks it and pours the contents all over the head of Jesus. And the disciples got really mad at her. They're indignant with this woman. Why? Because the disciples knew what was in the box. They knew how valuable it was. And so as they were talking amongst themselves, they said, this could have, you know, this was a year's wages. It was very precious. 300 pence, that's about, you know, pence would been about a, a, a day's wage. So we're talking about a year's wages. The a- average annual salary in West Virginia as of last year was $55,000 a year. So imagine a $50,000 a $50,000 bottle of perfume or $50,000 bottle of oil in this beautiful alabaster container. And this lady comes in smashes the neck off of it, and pours it on the head of Jesus. That's a lot. That's a lot of money, isn't it? The disciples, this woman has lost her mind. She has just flushed a year's wages. Think of all the good that we could have done. Think about the poor we could have fed. She just, she just wasted it. You know, they're, they're standing there with their jaws dropped. How, how could she have done this? Well, they were thinking about the precious oil. She was thinking about her precious Savior. As we read there in Peter, it was the precious blood of Christ. And he was precious to her. And so she was worshiping her Savior. Jesus heard them murmuring against her and he told her to leave her alone. Leave her alone. Just don't get after her. Why are you troubling her? Jesus said, you're always going to have the poor with you. Always. They're always going to be here. And that was a quote from Deuteronomy, or a quote, an allusion rather, from Deuteronomy 15, 11, that, that Jesus was pointing back to the Old Testament. He said, you're always going to have the poor with you. For the poor shall never cease out of the land, it says. Therefore, I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thy hand wide unto thy brother, and to the poor, and to the needy of thy land. You're always going to have the poor, and you're always going to have opportunity to take care of them. Deuteronomy 15 is concerning the Sabbath year. And every year, every seven years, they canceled the debt of the people of Israel. Every seven years, if you owed somebody something, they canceled your debt, and you got to go free. And what's interesting, though, is what God says about the land in verses 4 through 6. Listen to what it says. Save 
So he's talking about the release of the people from the dead. Save when there shall be no poor among you. For the Lord shall greatly bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it. Only if thou carefully hearken to the voice of the Lord God to observe to do all these commandments which I command you this day. For the Lord thy God blesseth thee as he promised, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, but thou shalt not borrow, and thou shalt reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over thee. Isn't that interesting? That, that God said, here are the laws for getting out of debt. And then in verse 11, he says, the poor will never cease out of the land. And you need to take care of the poor. But he said, if you keep my commands, if you follow what I say, if you do what I say, you'll never have to borrow. Because the land I'm sending you for an inheritance was a land flowing with milk and honey. God had promised if they would keep the covenant that he made with them, that they would be blessed above abundance. They'd never have to borrow. They'd never be in debt. But because they are hard-hearted, they would not keep the covenant. They would not keep the law. They would not keep what God said to them. And so there would be poor in the land. There would be they would not reign over nations, but they'd be reigned over. So what do you have here in the text? The disciples said, there's so many poor people. Think of what you could have done with all that money. Who are they being ruled by? They're being ruled by the Romans. They have broken God's covenant. And, and all these situations there in the Gospels are showing that the nation of Israel had failed. God had given them this old covenant and they broke it. They could not keep the law. And they suffer the consequences of, their, of this broken covenant. Jesus said, you're always going to have the poor among you. But you're not always going to have me. The disciples accused her of sin for not giving the money to the poor because they wasted it on Jesus. The, the Lord reminds them, though, that this should be a continual practice, not a one-time donation. But Jesus commends her in the main point for her love and devotion. She had done a good work. They are not going to find salvation through any political means. They are not going to find blessings through that old covenant because they broke it. The nation has already been broken apart. All there is left is Judah. Jesus has already condemned the temple worship and and compare them to the, the cursed fig tree. There's not, you're not going to find salvation there. And so she turn, he turns and says she has done a good work. It wasn't a waste of funds. It was a profitable act. It wasn't extravagance, but it was a, a beautiful thing that she had done. It wasn't an unwise, sinful act, but it was an act of worship. To her Lord. Imagine if you were sitting in there, and well, you know how it is if if um, you're in a room and somebody walks in and they've they've put on too much cologne or too much perfume, um, you can smell it right away, can't you? It just fills the room, and that might just be a, a couple squirts of, of perfume or something. 
this woman had taken this, this fragrant alabaster box, and it was probably a family heirloom that had been passed down. You're talking about something that expensive. It's probably been something that was given to her as a gift. Maybe it had been passed down. And maybe on special occasions, she'd take the top off and just get a little drop of it and, and, and rub it on her skin or whatever. That, that this, this precious bottle had been sitting there for a long time, no doubt, to be used sparingly on special occasions. But she breaks it, and the whole house would have smelled of this aroma. Well, the smell was distasteful to the disciples. It made Judah sick. Not because it smelled bad, but because he saw that money going away. It angered people that didn't have any understanding. What this was was an aroma of love and devotion and worship to Jesus. Unspiritual people won't understand the love and devotion Christians have towards Jesus. They dismiss people as fanatics. They'll say that we've lost our minds. What do you mean you, you spend every Sunday going to church? I go to church once or twice a year. Why do you, why do you go to church? What do you mean you read your Bible? What do you mean you, you worship Jesus? You're just getting a little out of, out of hand. But people don't understand the love a Christian has towards their Savior. And Jesus said she did what she could. That's, kind of, that's a different response to what you and I might say. Here she gave, she poured this ointment out in an act of devotion and worship to Jesus. A year's salary worth of this stuff. And Jesus said, well, she did what she could. The disciples said, what a tremendous waste of money. And Jesus said, no, don't give her a hard time. She did what she could. It was like just a little bit earlier in Mark where the widow was throwing in her might at the temple. She gave in her all, everything that she had. She gave in her whole living, it said. It was just a penny. That's all she had, but she gave it. She gave it. She did what she could. And now here we have another woman. This time she gives a lot of money, though. All that she had. She did what she desired. And Jesus said, well, she did what she could. The text doesn't tell us anything about the widow casting in all of her living, what the disciples said about that. And I don't know what they did. I mean, they may have went over and said, well, here, let me buy you something to eat. Let's give you some money. You've cast in everything that you have. Here's some money to go. I don't know what they did. They might not have done anything. But when that woman did all that she could, they watched her. But when this woman did all that she could, she did all that she was able, they kind of got mad at her. When the money increased... So did their concern for the poor. And that, that's the case with human nature. You know, if a, if a child gets $10 and they say, well, I want to give part of it to the church and they take a dollar, one dollar of the 10 and give it to the church, I say, well, well, that's a nice thing to do. But if somebody has $100,000 
and they take that same percentage, they what? Whoa, 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 that's, that's, a little, that's a little extreme, isn't it? So, you know, as the, the amounts go up, the way people think about their devotion and the love to the Lord changes a little bit too. Both of these women gave all that they could, but the disciples didn't get upset about it until the, the amount went up. But Jesus said she did all that she could. It wasn't the amount, but it was that was she did all that she could do. She gave her heart to the Lord, what she was able. God owns the world. He owns everything. It's not what we can give to him. It was the heart of her service. Right? So it, it is the heart. And so this, this woman gave of her heart. She said, I love the Lord and I'm going to express my love towards him. But the disciples, they had it all backwards. I don't know why she did it. Maybe just as an act of devotion only. Maybe to, to you know, they're out in the sun all the time. Maybe as an act of, of devotion and love and, and saying, you know, he's going to soothing for the skin and all these types of things. I don't know why she did it other than she loved Jesus. But God had a purpose in her devotion. She came to anoint his body for the burial. So when somebody died, they'd wash the body, they'd anoint it with oil, they'd prepare it in grave clothes, and then they'd bury their dead. And what happened, whether she knew it or not, this woman in her act of love anointed the body of Jesus prior to his death because he's not going to get such treatment afterwards. His death is nigh. It's almost time. Jesus tells him he's going to die, and it's close at hand. They're not always going to have Jesus with him, he says. Then in verse 9, Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of her for a memorial of her. This act is going to be remembered. It's going to be spoken of as a memorial. And you and I this morning are just one more example of Jesus' words being proven true. How many times this text has been preached, I don't know. But we're just one more example of this memorial of her love and devotion. And Jesus said it would be, and it is. Through the whole world. Even over here in West Virginia, it's being declared of what she had done. Jesus' words again and again prove true. You want to know if the words of Jesus are true? Well, you've experienced the fulfillment of one of them right now. That we are talking about this woman just like Jesus had declared on the other side of the planet. This is a testimony of her faith and her love and her devotion of Jesus. And she's memorialized for it. How much do you reckon that's worth? You think her being memorialized like this is worth 300 pence? You see uh, buildings all over town the so-and-so building where somebody donates a bunch of money 
so their name will be on the building. They donate a million dollars so it can be the so-and-so memorial building. People donate so much money so their name can be on a park bench as a memorial to whoever's name they put on it. I wonder if that was worth 300 pence. I said it was a year's wages because that's what it rounds out to, but I don't know. I mean, I didn't... A pence isn't even a denomination, right? So you have to do a lot of calculating to figure out how much it was. You think she'd trade that today? You think she would trade that oil? You think it's a waste for her right now? If you could talk to her right now, if you could talk to her today and say, dear sister and Lord, was it worth it? Do you regret your worship of Jesus? Do you regret that? Do you wish you would have held on to that alabaster box and kept it on the shelf for a special occasion? Ecclesiastes 7.1 says, A good name is better than precious ointment. There's something else also in Jesus' words. But this gospel, these glad tidings will be preached. Jesus is talking about his death in terms of good news. Jesus foretold his death, and Peter said, I won't let that happen. He said, called him Satan. You don't know what you're talking about, Peter. Jesus is talking about his death in terms of gospel, in terms of good news. He's talking about this gospel being preached throughout the whole world. This is not something that's just going to end here in Jerusalem. This is something that is going to go on and on and on. It's not a tragedy, but it's good news. It's not an ending, but it's a beginning. His death is not going to be a defeat, but a victory. The gospel goes forth as good news, as glad tidings. Um, they would, the Romans used the words such as this, talking about a battle being won and someone sending forth the glad tidings that we have won the battle. The good news of Jesus' death is not a tragedy, it's good news. Not an ending, but a beginning. Not a defeat, but victory. That is the focus of this. You are looking at the here and now. You're focused on today. You're focused on this box of ointment. You're focused on money. You're focused on giving to the poor. What you don't understand is, I am about to die. And in her loving act of devotion, she has anointed my body, sort of a pre-burial. that this is an act of love and devotion, signaling, prefiguring, that I'm about to die, and I'm going to be buried. But this message, this gospel of my death, is going to be preached throughout the whole world. This good news is going to be preached throughout the whole world. And the scene fades to black. Well, Judas had enough. That was the last straw. Judas leaves the house and he goes back to where we started. 
We know elsewhere from scriptures that Judas was a thief. He held the money, he was a thief, and all that money was gone. Jesus says, you're not going to have me always. I'm about to die. And this whole time, the disciples thought that they were coming to Jerusalem where Jesus would begin his reign upon the throne there in Jerusalem. They were expecting the glory of the Lord. They were wanting, remember James and John, I said that they were indignant. The disciples were indignant. Well, the last time they were indignant with somebody was when James and John says, I want to sit on your right hand and on your left hand in your, in your kingdom. They thought it was going to happen right now that Jesus was going to rule the world from Jerusalem as an earthly king. And if you're on the inside of that, you're going to have riches, you're going to have power, you're going to have influence. Judas hears Jesus talking about dying. All this kingdom talk wasn't what he thought it was going to be. It's not about getting rich, it's about giving, it's about love and devotion. It's about talking about good news about Jesus dying, preaching through the whole world. Well, Judas had enough. He was angry. He was over it. And so he left. And he goes back. He wants to talk to the chief priests. And so we get back to the conspiracy. There the chief priests and the scribes were talking. So, well, we don't know how we're going to do this. Probably be best to wait till the Passover and then we can, we can start our plan Jesus goes and talks to the chief priest, and while they were plotting, Judas walks in and says, I want to help you get rid of Jesus. I want to help you. I can deliver him. I can get him to where you can come in secretly and arrest him. I can tell you where he's going to be. I can deliver him to you so it won't come back on you. Verse 11, when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. Jesus spoke about the good news of his death. The priest spoke about the good news of Judas' betrayal. The priest promised to give Judas money, whereas Jesus promised the good news would be worldwide, declared worldwide of his death, burial, but it figures as resurrection. You see, this woman gave a year's wages in her worship to the Lord while Judas betrayed Jesus for what we know is 30 pieces of silver. Nothing. This woman is remembered for her devotion and her love and being a daughter of the king. Judas is remembered for his betrayal and a son of perdition. talk to Judas this morning you think he'd say yeah it was worth it it was worth it to betray the Lord God's plan will be accomplished that's how we started this God's plan will be accomplished now how does that tie into this well this was all the Lord's doing God is sovereign if birds are fed it's because the father feeds them if flowers are in the field, it's because the Father clothes the grass. A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The lot is cast in the lap, but the whole disposing is of the Lord. God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he pleased. 
Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that he did in heaven and earth and the seas and all the deep places. From the rising of the sun, from the west, there shall be none besides me. I am the Lord and none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace. I create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. That was Isaiah 45 and quoted Psalm 115, Psalm, Proverbs 16. God does whatsoever he pleases. We said, what about this conspiracy? Jesus is eating supper, and, and here these people have, have gathered together to do this evil act, to do these evil things, and, and who can stop them? They're, they're so powerful, who can stop them? Judas, his own familiar friend, as the scriptures testified, uh, betrayed him. The wicked do whatever they want, and it seems like they just get away with it. God is sovereign, but man is responsible. In uh, Genesis 50, verse 19, it says, Joseph said to his brothers, Fear not, for I am in the place of God. But as you thought it evil against me, God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as this day to save much people alive. Joseph's brothers betrayed him. They sold him into slavery. They wanted to get rid of him. They hated him. His brothers betrayed him. They conspired together against Joseph. And he went home and said, sorry, Dad, Joseph is dead. But you know that he was sold into slavery. Then he was thrown into prison. But then he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, and he was promoted. And it was through Joseph and his plans that they, they kept the food during the seven years of uh, feasting and could feed other people in the famine. They meant it for evil, but God, in his sovereign plan, Meant it for good. God is sovereign and does whatsoever he pleases, even using the wickedness of men to accomplish his ends. Over in the book of Acts, chapter 4, in verse uh, 23. So Peter and John were imprisoned for the gospel's sake, as Jesus told them they would be. And they were let go in verse 23, and they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them that they weren't supposed to talk in the name of Jesus. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, art thou God, which made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by thy mouth of the servant David said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Psalm 2, which we quoted. For of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. They plotted, they schemed, they came together to kill the Lord Jesus. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. The priest hated Jesus, and they are responsible. They weren't robots. They were responsible. They hated Jesus. They conspired together. They planned. They counseled together. Judas betrayed Jesus, and he was responsible. He admitted his guilt, cast the money back later on, ends up killing himself over out of his shame and the guilt he felt. 
But Peter and John, as they prayed, said this was part of God's ordained plan from the beginning. It was according to his counsel that he determined beforehand. This was the plan all along. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't God saying, okay, now what am I going to do? They ruined it. This was the plan from the beginning. Both of these things are true, that God is sovereign and man is responsible. We don't deny God's sovereignty, for the scripture clearly teaches it, but we also do not deny that man is responsible, because the scriptures clearly teach that. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, it says in the book of Romans. But if you go back a couple chapters, it says that God has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he'll harden whom he hardens. Those are both true. The priests said, we can't kill Jesus on the Passover, but God had other plans. Judas comes along and said, oh, happy day, good news. We didn't think we were going to be able to do it during the Passover, but Judas comes along. It's all working out better than we imagined. It worked out according to God's plan because the Christ would be would die on the, in the Passover. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to give his life a, ran, a ransom for many. And 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. For even as Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. The counsel of God ordained that the Son of God, the Lamb of God, would come and give his life a ransom for many. And then it wouldn't be through the temple worship and it wouldn't be through the offering of animals or bulls or goats, but the Lamb of God would be the Passover Lamb for us. He is our Passover. That was God's plan. God's plan was he would use the wickedness of these men to deliver up the Lord Jesus that he would die for our sins. God's plan will be accomplished. The true Passover died for sinners and gave his life a ransom for many. This woman loved Jesus and worshipped him out of the abundance of her heart. And Judas betrayed Jesus out of the abundance of his heart. Both are responsible. And this woman became a memorial and Judas became somewhat of a memorial for his sin against the Lord. Christ died according to scriptures. Christ died according to the plan of God. And then he calls everyone to repent and believe. You are a moral creature. You are responsible to obey. You are responsible to believe, to repent, to come to Christ. The Jews heard that, and they would not. Judas heard that. Judas preached that, and he would not. You have heard it this morning. You have heard the call to believe and to repent and to obey. You have seen the sovereign God orchestrate this beautiful plan of redemption in which Jesus Christ dies for sinners. He lives for our righteousness. He is the Passover lamb. He is the sacrifice to redeem his people. And all those who look upon him and believe and trust in him will be saved. 
He calls you to do that. God is sovereign. But you, you are responsible before God. Let's stand and be dismissed in word of prayer. Elijah, would you please dismiss us in prayer? Father, thank you for the day that you have come.